I just hope everyone just has a little bit more understanding overall and, you know, just be kind to one another, you know. I remember a lot of people are of, of, you know, different creeds, races and and, identif- and identifications have just a hard time every day with, you know, like that constant stress of um, just trying not to get attacked, you know. And even in, in this climate with everything, like, you know, with all these kind of um, hate crimes against... Um, Chinese and Asian people. It's not like I walk the streets thinking that I'm going to be immune to it. Today on Dirty Linen, we are chatting to Victor Leong. He is chef and owner of Lee Ho Fook in Melbourne and Chuka in Sydney. He's one of the country's most interesting chefs and I always love chatting to him about food and the hospitality industry. I have to say I also love eating his food. Um, before we start talking about representation and racism, continuing with this uh, fortnight of heavy but important discussions. I wanted to touch on something, Victor, that we were chatting about the other day. Um, I just chatted to you for an article about pandemic silver linings and I was really taken with the fact, not I guess that you play golf exactly, but that you've rebuilt a business that allows you to have a life that can indeed include golf. Can you talk to me about where things are at for you with the business at the moment? Yeah, so we reopened uh, November last year and um, I lost a significant percentage of staff um, through what's happened last year and kind of revisiting how we operate moving forward. We changed the um, the offering at Lee Hofuk to be tasting menu only. So we offer an eight course tasting menu at uh, dinner time and a four course at lunchtime. And um, I guess due to where we were in the C- CBD, we decided to only we only start opening um, at a capacity of four days a week to see how this kind of panned out. And as restrictions eased, we didn't open extra services. I still feel like we're we're trying to restabilize um, to optimal performance, but. I think with um, with these changes and the um, the limited kind of opening hours, we've managed to kind of uh, find a really nice balance between um, you know uh, cooking in an intense and creative manner that we we really enjoy, but also um, to kind of communicate our creativity and culinary kind of idea forward with the tasting menu, but also. Um, funny enough, we managed to kind of keep the the work life balance in check, um, and yeah, and I think with that, it, it kind of solidifies, it paints a little picture of you know how to proceed moving forward. And I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm just excited to to carry on this, and hopefully this is a model for something that's a little bit more sustainable um, in the future. And and yeah, as as in terms of business, something that we can kind of keep keep operating as you know, without being tempted to, to open or be almost too greedy to, to you know, like revert back to how, how things were, I guess. So, yeah, that's, um, that's how, how it's been for now. Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess they, you know, they say never waste a crisis. And I, I think it's, it's really admirable, you know, that people have managed to find ways to reopen and, and rebuild, but to not just go back to how things were. We know that hospitality was a difficult industry for the people that work in it for, you know, a number of reasons, difficult on the body, difficult, um, you know, difficult mentally, um, you know, tricky to get people spending the money that they need to spend to make it all worthwhile. So I think it's, I think it's really great that it's um, enabled you to reset in this way. 
yeah, I'm excited to kind of see how it how it progresses because you know I think everyone was everyone who's been in the industry for a while as a, a chef operator, you know, uh, front of house person has always kind of tried to figure what's a nice work life balance or you know is there a is there a model or a way to have you know a little bit of both so that you're not giving up you know either your passion for uh, working in a certain way or or you know the the team that you like it's you know what i mean and also you know leaving time for yourself family and other things because i think you know as working in hospitality attracts a lot of really passionate people really kind of um almost obsessive people and i feel that if if you're not working in that environment you feel like you're shortchanging yourself and your you know like your kind of personal drive and i think that's probably one of the unhealthy things um so it's nice to see there's a possibility of um of change now that this has all happened so yeah hopefully we can keep it up yeah it's really quite revolutionary so i reckon probably as you were coming up in your career and and training i don't reckon (laughs) that people would have spoken to you heaps about work-life balance um but tell us a little bit about you know how you came up in kitchens and your career um you you know i know you trained mostly or you, you worked a lot in european fine dining and i'd just love you to talk a bit about that and just sort of explain to us where Chinese food or Asian food fits in with that or whether or not it did? Yeah, look, I think, you know, I, I was really drawn to working in kitchens for a, a number of reasons. You know, I really like the idea of um, working in, you know, a type team environment. I like working with my hands. You know, I, I obviously really enjoyed eating and drinking. Um, and, you know, my first foray into kitchens i was still in university um i was working um in sydney at the casino at the time just casually as they had a position called a general hand which is kind of like a kitchen hand but you didn't do any um kind of uh, dishwashing it was just more vegetable prep and jumping into service when they needed you and that you know during that time i was a casual so i worked in all outlets so it gave me a chance to kind of figure out which style of kitchen I wanted to kind of be in, you know, in terms of the range of, um, yeah, in a range of kind of settings. And then when I, when I finished university, I decided I'd, I'd take up an apprenticeship and I really enjoyed working in like a French kitchen. So I took a job at um, a bistro very for a short time because it closed. Um, uh, called the Kirkton, and I really enjoyed that because that was, I, I guess, when I first started, it was still, it was kind of the tail end of the big kitchen brigade. You know, I remember it was like fourteen chefs in this in this kitchen, that, and we only cooked for like eighty people. So you know, this day and age, that'd be unheard of. Um, and I learned a lot because it was very classic. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was, it was that kind of Parisian, and not that kind of neo. Parisian type, you know, bistro. So it was like steak tartare, you know, um, steak au poivre, you know, like fish of the day, you know, there was all vegetable garnishes, sauces. It was pretty cool, you know, like made tartatans, souffles, that type of vibe. And then when that closed, I went and joined um, the kitchen team at Galileo, which is at the observatory, which was at the observatory hotel at the time. Um, and that was like a really cool kind of, um, boutique hotel in um 
kind of where Barangaroo is up the top of the hill. And the, that at that time, the, the executive chef was Haru Inukai, who worked at Robichon for years in Tokyo. And I really wanted to kind of map out a career where I could, I don't know, potentially travel overseas or, you know, and I thought, you know, Robichon was like my favorite chef and I'm still a huge fan of his kind of work. Then I thought, you know what, this is probably, I'll, I'll put, dip my toe in the water and see how this is. And, and I remember joining that team and it was all Japanese chefs. Um, so, and, and a big kitchen too. It was, you know, I think the brigade was 16 chefs and I was the apprentice and learning, learning with that kind of team was really fascinating, you know, and a lot of these guys um, spent time in France, you know, this is, we're talking kind of the, the late nineties, mid 2000 type Japanese chef that traveled the world and, and stage at like, you know, Alain Chappelle, the Tuago brothers, Bocuse. So it was a, a whole team of young Japanese guys that worked French fine dining exclusively, you know, stage at three star restaurants. So it was, um, it was a nice kind of, um, time to learn like it was intense and the hours were long and um, the pressure was um, pretty manic but I really enjoyed that because you could tell you could see the skills develop you know day by day and you know the the trust and the camaraderie and and um, and after that I kind of diddled around for a little bit and ended up at the kitchen at Mark and um, worked worked for Mark Best for about three and a half years so yeah I think my early career my my headspace was all about just like fine dining and working for like a Robichon esque type, you know, aspiration for for my career. And you know, I kind of ended up at Mark, and it was kind of lucky how I got that position. And yeah, I, you know, and working in that environment was, you know, I think Bestie was probably always the pioneer of you know the small kitchen. This and kind of intense focus, lots of creativity, you know. So going from a kitchen where there was 16, 14 to 16 chefs on every service to a kitchen team that was, you know, five or six maximum every day um, was a was a different change because then you had to learn, like you had to be um, pretty proficient at a lot of things because you were doing the work of, you know, up to three people each. And, um, and Mark and his reputation was on the line and he was pretty demanding as a, as a chef owner. And he, you know, he, he expected a lot because he gave a lot. So um, I really enjoyed my time there. And I remember that was, yeah, that was my focus for a long time to, to try and, and hone in on um, a Eurocentric idea of what fine dining was. And uh, looking back, I, I, I really, yeah, really enjoyed it. It's, you know, it's it served me in a lot of kind of different ways, I guess, you know, um, to graduate me into a chef owner at such a young age, I guess. It's, um, I mean, my mind is just crackling with all the things that you came upon and that you learned and that you had to do. It just sounds like a really rich training ground Um and to be part of those brigades, yeah, it must have been, as you say, very intense, but there must have been so much opportunity to learn. Um, and, yeah, uh, anyone who... Um, wants to know more about Mark and about Mark Best, I really do recommend that you um, head to my brother podcast, Deep in the Weeds, and listen to Mark Best's chat with Anthony Huckstep. It's a really brilliant conversation and he's certainly, um, yeah, just like an absolute key figure in Australian cuisine or such an, yeah, such such an interesting mind around food and the dining experience. Um 
Victor, I, I sort of hate asking these sort of very flattening um, questions about heritage um, and, you know, I don't, yeah, I really, <laughs> so there's my caveat. But um, tell us a bit about like your um, your Chinese-Australian background, your Asian background and, and whether you felt that you were putting that to one side at all in any way as you trained in this European style of dining. Yeah, I think, you know, well, I my family migrated here from Malaysia in 1991. Um, my grandparents are from China. So, you know, growing up, um, eating Chinese food and, and being part of like a Chinese household was, you know, um, that was my my kind of heritage. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, uh, as a new migrant moving into a country like Australia, um, where it's, I guess it's it's a collective, a collective group of people I you know make the society that we live in um when you're young you kind of you're not sure about where you fit in in this so you know and I and I've I, I guess I've always kind of struggled with that identity you know like personally I guess um and you know and for a long time you kind of squash the Chinese well I squashed the Chinese side down and then just kind of embraced and and did that you know try to assimilate um into into society in you know your mannerisms in your kind of uh, behavior in in your kind of thinking and then obviously you back it up with your actions at work and with with career so i think in my mind it was always going to be eurocentric at the start and a big part of it um, you know, me m- moving into the direction of Liho Fook was um, kind of to re-explore the cultural heritage that I kind of s- squashed down for so long. Um, but you know, working in working in these fine dining restaurants, you you just have to do the work, and the work is you know, it's like a very monolithic one one chef, one idea, like umbrellaed version of you know uh, creativity. So a lot of, a lot of it was kind of um, yeah, like frog in the well type thing where you knew there was a bigger world out there, but you just had to focus on, you know, a, a certain style, flavor profile, technique or aesthetic um, for, you know, the, for the restaurants or for the chefs. So, yeah, there's been a lot. And understandably, because it's like, you know, you don't you, you, you don't go to, you know, to, to one to one style of of you know artistry and work under a master and then try and you know give your own little flair that's not how it works right (laughs) well i mean no i guess that's not how it works in those very i guess hierarchical kitchens or kitchens where there's you're definitely there in the service of expressing someone else's culinary identity but i mean what was it that made you want to express something else well, I think it, it you, you know, I, in my instance, I, I was in my mid twenties, you know, I hit a point where I was like, look, I could either go overseas and, and go down the career path of, you know, carry on chasing three Michelin stars and, and, and then eventually end up as someone's, you know, executive chef as an activation chef or whatever, or I could stay in Australia um, and carry on the path and, you know, work towards a, a head chef at a, you know, like a gastro temple, or I could take the kind of uh, path with the steepest learning curve um, and and put my, once again, dip my toe in the water and try Asian cookery. And I think I was lucky because at the time, um, Dan Hong was recruiting 
chefs to open Mr. Wong. So um, I knew Dan from just around, you know, we used to go to El Loco a lot and he um, he just opened that. So I bumped into him one day and we had a conversation and it was, yeah, and I thought, you know what, this is, this could be a pretty cool opportunity um, just to see how how that side of um, the culinary world works. And um, and I learned a lot from, you know, working with him and, and seeing how he kind of, you know, um, his style of cuisine works. And, and I really, yeah, I've, I've I've got a world of gratitude for for Dan. So, um, yeah, I guess it was it was that was the moment where I kind of yeah made the switch. I guess. Mm, interesting. And I mean, how did it feel? Well, I think at the start, before I actually started working there, I thought, oh, this is might be a, a super steep learning curve. But then, you know, when I started working for Dan, I was at Miss G's. And entering that kitchen because that was like a small, tight kitchen. You know, I think there was only like seven chefs in there, um, and it was very busy. And you know, I, and I, I remember meeting the team, and I I just remember meeting all these young, like young chefs with very similar kind of um, stories. You know, they were all um, of Asian Asian heritage, cooked in some kind of. You know, the majority of them cooked in some kind of you know um euro you know european um slash you know um french fine dining uh background and they all you know kind of had the same turning point of uh thinking about exploring their own kind of culture and cuisine and and I, I guess the timing was fantastic for them as well because you know it was yeah the whole team was you know young you know super energetic super knowledgeable um you know really really good experience with a range of cuisines and everyone just sat there going like facing Jowett and Dan like what do we do next you know and it was yeah it was really good and what about now like you you've got your own restaurants, you create your own dishes and menus. How do you meld or interweave the different uh, influences and cuisines that you've got in you? Well, I think it's kind of like, you know, I, 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 I'm still, you know, perpetually learning and exploring the cuisines and history of China. And I think as I get older, it's more like, how am I going to weave that into like an Australian or a Melbourne lens, you know what I mean? So then, then it kind of, yeah, it's a, it's an idea that I kind of dabbled with earlier where it's like, I didn't want to be identified as having a Chinese restaurant in Melbourne. I really wanted um, to be closer to like having a uh, Melbourne restaurant that served Chinese food, you know, and, and whatever that kind of idea meant. And, you know, and I think that gives you, oh, it gives me anyway, a sense of like, you know, where I, I belong in kind of the fabric and culture of the city that I'm in. So, and that way, the secondary part will be my, you know, cultural heritage or the flavor profiles that I'm trying to push forward. But first and foremost would be like, how do I serve the community, you know, the city, the, the, the region I'm in a little bit better, you know, before myself, I guess. And what about the European influences, like, you know, all the things that you learnt, those, all those, those tart tans and the, the steak au poivre, like all those kinds of techniques that you were so excited about when you were a young chef? Yeah, I guess, you know, we, we still weave them into parts of, you know, components of dishes and, you know, um, the kitchen is, is very kind of, you know, European set up, I guess. But I, I, I feel like I don't know how to set a kitchen up in a, a more efficient way, I guess. Um, yeah, but the rest of it's, you know, like it comes out in, in 
cooking food when I feel like it. But I think in a work setting, it's a little bit more, you know, I think we've defined a bit of a style of how we kind of cook and create at the moment. So that seems to be working for us. You know, I'd, I'd like to think it's working for us a bit better after running the restaurant for eight years. <laughs> um, well, yeah, you know it I mean? seems like a pretty well-oiled machine, got to say. But so remember that event we did a couple of years ago, Melbourne Food and Wine Festival event at Flower Drum? And yes. it was you and, and Dan and Jowett and doing some of your dishes interspersed with, you know, the just like incredible, like I bow down, you know, flower drum. It was such a fun event. Like what's it like for you to go? I mean, obviously flower drum is also a very Melbourne restaurant, but it is, um, you know, it, it, the kitchen, um, yeah, like it's, it's more, I guess, classically Chinese than what you do. Yeah, 100%. Uh, what's it like for you to um, dip into that world? Oh, it's amazing. Like I, I really value and appreciate the, the relationship that, you know, Flower Drum as a restaurant and the Louis family have, you know, with my business and myself. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's really nice to, to go into, you know, a, such a generous and, and, you know, amazing gastro temple. You know, these guys have been around 40 plus years. Um, and for their, their team to, you know, embrace us and for us to, you know, create and cook together. Um, it was a very nice experience and, you know, like looking at it, it's because I, I don't think, you know, me, Dan or Jowett ever trained or kind of, you know, we've always been visitors to Chinese kitchens and we've never trained in them. So it was very, it was still, oh, I, wouldn't, I don't like to say the word novel, novel, but it was, um, it's always still a new experience and, and, you know, it's, um, an, an interesting experience too, to see how they would set up. A, a very traditional Cantonese Chinese kitchen, you know, compared to how we would do it. So, um, yeah, it was it was an honor and a privilege, you know, to 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 work and to be in that in those situations. Yeah, I I walked into the kitchen. I couldn't even believe that I was that it was happening. It just felt like such an entree into an incredibly, um, yeah, just I felt so incredibly privileged to, um, yeah to be there um but I mean even as we talk about that it just makes me so uh it just makes me so annoyed at how flattening and blanding out it is to talk about something like anti-Asian racism or anti-Chinese racism like it's it just turns these these um very (laughs) uh diverse multiplicitous just like incredibly rich different cultures and traditions and histories into this one thing. I mean, racism is always just so dumb, but to even have to frame a discussion as anti-Asian racism just is, I don't know, it just is so, it's just so annoying. Um, <laughs> so, um, and yet uh, we have seen in, through this pandemic this surge in anti-Asian racism where people blamed Chinese people and more broadly people of Asian heritage for the pandemic. Chinatowns emptied out around the country. It was pretty awful. Um, how did this strike you? Yeah, look, you know, it's, it, it is very sad. Um, and, you know, it's 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 still pretty sad to, and yeah, quite quite depressing to see you know this this still perpetuating, you know, around the world, you know, and and how annoyingly it's it's um, 
it's taken quite a dangerous and real form in you know parts of america and you know but economically you can see it you know happening and unfolding in you know australia and and around the world um yeah i guess uh, it's yeah i I wish i had a, a bit of an explanation of why that is but you know like almost looking at those two cases side by side it's like is it because it's like a colonial-esque type history behind that is that a you know i i, I don't know is it there's is it a like a history of indentured workers is that what it is like yeah i don't know it's um it's still it's frustrating that it's still happening um and yeah i'd, I'd, I'd be ignorant uh, to say that it's not happening like every day in parts of you know the country or the world, so yeah, it is like you said, it, it is ugly and 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 frustrating and just yeah, a bit of a shame, really. Mm. I mean, I think um, there's this idea of Asians in Australia being or and in other Western countries being this model minority that it's um yeah, like succeeding on and all manner of um, indicators, um, perhaps not uh, not being shouty and standing up. I mean, how does that, um, what do you think, does that resonate with you as, as a concept and, and what does it mean if you, if you act as this quote-unquote model minority? Yeah, I remember when I was younger, like, you know, before I was a teenager, my, my parents used to say that, you know, you'd have to, you know, every time you were out in public and, you know, uh, in, in the kind of eyes of society, you'd have to behave in a way where they couldn't criticize you, you know, for your actions. So it meant that if they, they had anything to say, it was all purely visual and it was coming from, you know, their prejudice, you know, so that, that concept of the model minority, you know, don't, don't make a mess. Don't, don't be ashamed, you know, don't disgrace like the, the, the sum of us uh, that was, you know, really kind of ingrained into our psyche growing up. You know what I mean? So it was because that, especially like when I was in primary school, it was kind of the time when Pauline Hansen came into the public eye and, you know, everyone was kind of, it, it, it kind of just peeled away this ugly layer and revealed this ugly layer of, you know, racism and, and some prejudice against, you know, Asian, Asian people. Um, and then I feel that like my parents kind of um, protection against that was to, to for everyone to kind of just be that model citizen is like you know we you can't you know be upset with us when we're not doing anything wrong but i i feel that you know it's when when there's you know ra- any any kind of form of racism or discrimination happening to you it's not really about what you do it's just how you look in the mirror i guess so um yeah that's yeah i, I guess that's always kind of been um, you know, drummed into us. You know, it's the the nail that stands out gets the hammer. So don't stand out. That's so. It's just so awful, really, to think about this idea that you had to act in such a way that no one could complain about how you were acting. So that if there was any any, I guess, negativity or aggression or microaggression, whatever it was towards you, that it was really clear that it was because of how you looked, i.e. Asian, mm. i.e., it's racist. Like that's a lot for you to yeah. take on as a as a young person walking out your front door into the world. 
Yeah, it's pretty. It's, it's you know, and it's as as I'm the more I think about that, it's you know, I think it's it's funny how in in the east they say that yeah, if, the, if you're a nail that stands out, you get the hammer. But in the west, it's the squeaky wheel gets the grease. It's like you know, one gets attention, the other one gets bashed. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Um, and I guess, yeah, it's, 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 I guess it's like the mindset of that, right? Because if, if you can, if you can go through the whole day without anything happening to you, I guess that's considered a safe, you know, environment and you, you, you know, you're forced to kind of behave in a certain way. And it's, it's funny when, when you mentioned the term microaggression, I guess it's, you know, when you're on the kind of receiving ends of, you know, a possible kind of uh, racist uh, race, any any kind of racist gesture or, or behavior, the microaggression falls on the victim. You know what I mean? So it's like, you know, any kind of, you know, off comment or, or you know, kind of, oh, oh, you know, hate hateful gesture, you just kind of, you suck it up and you squash it down. You know what mm. I mean, and that that over a, a long period of time, kind of it, it sits in a, a quite a dark space, right? Um, so, yeah, I guess I, I guess I'm lucky that I I can work in an environment where I can express myself creatively and kind of tell the tell the story of what I want to to kind of achieve in my work and my creativity, you know, on my own terms. But I feel that there's a lot of you know, people out there, people of color, uh, you know, that, or, or what is considered as a nonconformist, you know, in terms of, you know, um, you know, gender, you know, gender classification or, um, you know, indigenous mm. people, all of these kind mm. of uh, subcultures of people that experience this day to day. And, you know, and how many of them don't have an avenue of, you know, like therapy or, an outlet of their their kind of anger or you know what i mean like and mm. w- what does that mean so does that mean that you know you have a, a quite a significant percentage of the population actually just quite angry yeah well it it makes me it makes me wonder about that as well and it, it, i mean you know you said um earlier that you struggled a bit with your identity and you i guess tried to fit in and i mean cooking is is the kind of um arena where you can start off down one road and then you can sort of bring all that knowledge that you've gained, you know, all the, the tartan and the, the steak, the pepper sauce or whatever it is, you can bring that along with you as part of your suite of skills and experience into something where you are able to express, you know, another part of your identity. It can be part of the journey, but I guess there are lots of, where there would be lots of arenas in life where it's harder to, I guess more for you know take take a little bit of a, another turn and still hang on to those skills and experience. It, I mean, people often talk about racism and microaggressions, particularly, well, not maybe particularly, but as well as just such a total time waster and just such an energy suck. And it's so unfair that you know people who experience it have to divert energy that could be put into all kinds of things that are fulfilling for them and great for the world into this sort of defensiveness and protection. Yeah. I, th- I feel like, you know, and 
it's that's prob- that's exactly what it is, right? It's you're 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 in a almost constant state of fear and heightened anxiety, you know, um, and then that's just like your day to day. But then there's also that cost of like you know how how much do you squash down? How much do you kind of repress? How much do you not reveal so that you can be seen as you know like less of a target, you know, in your day to day. And that's, I, I guess that that's a struggle for for anyone who's experienced this kind of um, stress and you know trauma. It's it's ongoing, you know, and and also you you never like you never feel you're completely safe from it um, because it was it's is that an, an interesting point where I saw like David I think Dave Chappelle put this forward. It's like the real the real kind of racism that you that is kind of the scariest is the one that you don't see you know it's not the guy that tells you you know go home fuck off we're full it's the it's the times where you get you know kind of overlooked for the promotion or you don't get included in you know something that would be beneficial for you you know um long term and they're all things that like you know to to be in in a society where that is like a weird simmering kind of undertone um yeah i i guess it's like the 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 issue is a little bit bigger than just oh you know everyone should just get along or you know why can't we understand each other i think there's there's something underlying there and it's got to come from something and it's it's part of i guess a a, a weird kind of like colonial history a, a eurocentric media uh you know it's it's um it's a uh, you know, th- it's a sum of all these little things that that kind of um, create the this this environment that that everyone needs to kind of navigate through. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. And, and it's it sort of makes it makes me think about leadership and representation. I mean, you mentioned Pauline Hanson, you know, a politician who I guess uh, traded in in xenophobia and. Yeah, creating these others within our culture. And, you know, we've certainly had other leaders and figures in the media and, you know, all kinds of people who have also played into people's worst sentiments rather than their best. So I think I think strong, ethical, thoughtful leadership is certainly something that can start to unpick these things. But I guess it's also an acceptance that the kind of systemic racism that you're talking about even exists. And I think we saw a lot of the the, the push and pull with that with the, the Collingwood Football Club thing where there was a report into systemic racism and it was so difficult for people who'd been leading that organisation, some of them, to even admit that it existed. And until there is that recognition that it's real, it's going to be really hard to unpick it. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's from, it's, it's layered through everything, right. You know, and you know, the conversation about diversity in, um, in anything is not just, I guess, for the, for the fact that it just looks good on paper to have, you know, different voices and, and perspective. It's just so that it, it's, it's got like a bit of a self-policing type, um, you know, kind of mechanism in there because it's, you know, I, I, I read a, a, an article that was like, oh, you know, if you get 
95% of the CEOs in the world, they're all going to be between like five foot eight and six foot four and all white guys. You know what I mean? So basically a CEO, you can like just look at someone and go, this guy, you know, he would, you know, a majority of people would believe that he would be able to, or, and it is a he as well, you know, to lead, you know, um, a, a corporation. So it's, it's like, I think society needs to slowly shift away from, you know, what we I guess, I don't know, it's like a weird kind of stereotype or happy to accept type um, mentality, if that makes sense. Mm, absolutely. There's some there's some crazy stat or factoid, like there are more CEOs in Australia called Andrew than there are women or something like that. Yeah, it's- absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, and there's a lot, there's a huge range of these, you know, conversations where it's like, oh, you know, what's the argument for, you know, having – uh, more women in the workforce does that mean that all of a sudden just because they do that they 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 put the diversity card in the bin you know what does the diversity card even mean like it's it's yeah it's i guess it's if everyone kind of does their little kind of you know clean out of their closet and have a look at how they they they, they their own kind of perceptions of how things should run like across the board i think it's it's a yeah, I'm sure it's going to be a painful, you know, exercise. Even you know, with with everyone's own little kind of organization, I mm. guess it's it's a step in the right the right direction. I guess you know. Yeah. Well, what is there something that you could point to that you'd like to see change? Like what, any of anything anything specific that you think you could point to that you're like, yeah, this particular thing should be changed. But you know what? Like, I think it's slowly. I think you know after what's after the pandemic and and you know with with everyone being able to have their own voice and um the communication being easier you can slowly see there is a movement towards um some act, so, uh, like uh, some real changes through you know for example what what happened recently with bon appetit and you know that's almost like a pillar for like the food industry, because I can honestly really only comment for, you know, the industry that I work in and operate in really. And, you know, having that change and then seeing that slowly trickle down to, you know, um, to, to other kind of real um, household names, um, you know, from food publication and the, the, the opinions and the, the articles that, you know, I, that are, are being kind of written lately, um, Yvonne Lamb does a very good job, you know, writing, um, you know, really kind of tough topics for that. And I, I don't know how she does it, but she articulates it so well. Um, and, you know, just seeing stuff like that. She's great. She's, she, she was on this, um, she was on the podcast um, earlier in the week. So anyone who haven't, who hasn't listened to the episode with Yvonne. Yeah, listen to it. It's amazing. She's so, yeah, she's so great. So anyone who hasn't listened to it, go back and, and um, have a listen. She's She's fantastic, and we put lots of links in that in those show notes as well. But sorry, Victor, for interrupting. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, I, I I totally like highly recommend you know exploring her work because uh, she articulates it in such a like a, a very nuanced and balanced viewpoint. And you know, and she's one of many. You know, I think Solil Ho Ho is doing a fantastic job. Um, you know, I think she's she writes for Eater in the states, but you know, there's little pockets of it and. You know, it's. I wouldn't even think that this kind of content would be out. You know, like five years ago. You know what I mean? Eight years ago. Like, 
it's um so it's good to see that change and hopefully it resonates with you know another small pocket of people that that feel or think the same way and and it slowly gives them an opportunity to say that you know their their voice and their opinions can be you know um expressed in a certain way either through work or words um yeah it's just it's it's a pretty heavy um overall topic to kind of try and and unpick you know yeah it's society it's big um, yeah, yeah i know it really is you yeah. know what i mean it's like it really is <laughs> but i guess it you know it's like yeah it's like well you just start where you are and you just do it i guess um yeah uh there's i guess you know there's a bit of reckoning involved and then you just yeah well a lot of reckoning what needs to think about it what needs to change and then just yeah start where you are um, is there anything else that you want to say, Victor? No, I think it's, um, yeah, I just, I just hope everyone just has a little bit more understanding overall and, you know, just be kind to one another, you know, I remember, um, and a, a lot of people are of, of, you know, different creeds, races and, and identifi and identifications have just a hard time every day with, you know, like that constant stress of, um, just trying not to get attacked, you know, and even in, in this climate with everything like, you know, with all these kind of, um, hate crimes against, um, Chinese and Asian people, it's not like I walk the streets thinking that I'm going to be immune to it. Right. You know, like there's that quasi, um, little bit of fear going, you know, could be just an angry person out there who just doesn't like me. And I just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, um, it's... Yeah, that's, I mean, just, yeah, makes me so upset and to think that you would feel that and, you know, if that anyone would feel that and no matter who they are and, yeah, it's just as it isn't as simple as being kind and just telling people to be kind and people remembering to be kind, but that is a bloody good start um, and, a, and, a, and a really good place to, to stop in the middle and a really good place to finish. I think, you know, a heap more kindness and perspective and, you know, taking of deep breaths and just, yeah, getting your shit together would be, um, would be really good. Um, and, and leadership. I just feel like we're crying out for, um, strong leadership. Yeah. You know, I think we're all craving for a, a kind of, you know, visionary and reformist leader that has, you know, a little bit of like a long-term, view and a more kind of unifying message than, you know, another leader that's worrying about their ch their next kind of tenure or their, their re-election date. You know, I think that'd be nice. Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's that big, we need the small picture, which is like people just going around being super kind to each other all the time. And then we need the big picture, which is, pe with, which is like people presenting us with this, with a huge vision and um, yeah, just making it, possible for everybody to buy into it sounds a bit utopian but i mean geez if you're not looking for utopia what are we all doing yeah true i think it's like yeah it's, it's either love or war right <laughs> yeah <laughs> um victor it's been really really great to have this um big chat with you i really appreciate your time and you putting the energy into this discussion um yeah thanks for all the great food that I've eaten and that I know I will eat coming out of your pans and woks. Um, and yeah, just thank you for, for bringing your perspective to this 
difficult conversation. Oh, thank you. No, thank you, Danny. Thanks for your um, your help and support through all of the hard times that we've had over the last kind of year and a half. You've been a, you've been a bloody saint, and um, it's my pleasure to be on this podcast. <laughs> Thanks for having me. No worries. Thanks for embarrassing me. See ya. <laughs> Bye. This is Dirty Linen, and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.